What's going on, family? What's going on? What's going down? What's shaking? Welcome to Jonathan Souls Podcast. All right. This is Jonathan Soul speaking with you now. I got the honor and privilege of talking to one of the pioneers, one of the founding fathers of the modern black comics independent vibration. I'm talking about Turtel only. Not only has he created Nog, the protector of the pyramids, but he's also created a space. He created a context. He created an idea uh, that kind of fostered the black age of comics. Uh, Turtel only. Welcome to the program. All right. Thanks for having me. Good, man. Good, good, good. So uh, let's let's let me let me ask you this, man. I told you off mic. I was uh, lucky enough to looks like I got a first printing of Nog, the protector of the pyramids. And so, you know, when I'm when I'm when I'm flipping through it, you know what I mean? I'm struck by three things initially. The first is uh, the the way that you create this this. Uh, this universe, right? I'm thinking I'm flipping through these pages and I'm seeing how you have characters and these kind of organic backgrounds and these symbols. And the first thing I thought about, and I hope I got this name, this guy's name, right. Is uh Petro bell. Isn't he the artist of all of those uh, Funkadelic um, album covers? Is that right? That would, that would be Pedro, 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 bell. Pedro bell. Tell me some of the yeah. influences uh, that came to bear uh, in your art style? Well, I would say that, you know, you got like spontaneous development. In my case, a lot of the artwork that became, or the images that became uh, the particular pyramids, it was two things. One, it came from sketches that I was planning to use in my fine art. Okay. And then when I was, when I was living and working in France, I, uh, this would have been in the late seventies. I went to the Louvre and they had an exhibit and one of the exhibits was like a foot that was about four feet long out of granite of what was left from a Nubian statue wow. that Napoleon, that Napoleon had brought back from his quote, Egyptian campaign. Mm -hmm. And then when I turned the corner, they had a lithograph of Napoleon with cannons shooting the nose off of the Sphinx. Okay. Yep. And so, so I got offended and I'm like, now, you know, how do I respond to this? And so that response came to me creating the Nubian of greatness, Nog, the protector of the pyramids, coming from a Nubian worldview. Because what most people don't know, Egypt was a configuration that came from Europe when they wanted to take Kemet, Nubia, out of Africa and put it in the Mideast. Hmm. And so, and so my idea was to put the black face back on it all by going with Nuba and going with Nubian as a worldview and planet Nuba. Mm -hmm. So I was looking at, I started looking at a lot of the work of the Nubian people and what they were doing in their own sense of symbolic um, representation, uh, scarification, body beautification, and things like that. And then I look across the other way, going across Africa to the west, to the Dogon people. And the Dogon were cliff dwellers. And when the Europeans encountered them and asked, like, where did you all come from? I mean, how did you get up in these cliffs and these mountains? They pointed up to the sky to what turned out to be the Cirrus dog star system. They yep. knew where it was. They had it charted and everything. Mm -hmm. So me, yeah. right there. So, so for me, I connected those two points in flowing with what I call genetic memory, meaning coming out of just my own DNA to craft images and storyline that ultimately became that book. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of comics that are being created and I, I go through them and I only review certain select books. And the reason why I do it is because I know how important it is for black people, Africans in America, Africans all over the planet to control their own images. Turtel, can you speak to that? Can you speak to the, to the, to, to the importance of black people, Africans controlling their own images? Yeah. I like that you used the word African because the great prophet Peter Tosh always had a song called, you know, wherever you are, you an African, yep. you know? And so, and so rather it's the location of the time period with African people. 
I none will of, none say of that, that we none of that people and people of color shit. I'm talking about Africans in America, no, Africans we, we, in the Caribbean, whatever. We we're African people wherever we are. One drop, you African. And so going forward, we control the making of the images. We don't control the commerce that goes with the proliferation of the image. Okay. So there's always been African image makers, always. I mean, you go back to the Bible, and you know Pharaoh had to be a brother to behave like that. We know each other. <laughs> and and we look at the Sphinx, you know, we're controlling that image. <laughs> and so somebody coming along with more commerce at another period of time may have the resources to control how the image gets out there. Okay. Uh, you may reference to Pedro Bell, I want to say, um, not influence, but it's like spontaneous generation. See, like people don't understand the black African cultural movements that came out of Chicago. The, the late uh, Elijah Muhammad was based here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Jesse Jackson was based here. Uh, Johnson Publishing that gave us Ebony Magazine was based here. Yep. Major black-owned advertising agencies were based here. They were all in Chicago. Mm-hmm. I mean, myself, I grew up, I grew up, my grandfather raised me, and uh, he was a, a, a Pentecostal pastor that created artwork, huge charts to go with his sermons. Wow. And of course the people look like they should have looked. They all look black. So I grew up looking at this as a little boy, four, five, six, and seven. So when people start talking about a black Jesus, I'm like, y'all tardy to the party. <laughs> you know? And so and so here we always had a strong black threshold. What the segregation in Chicago did was create a thriving black community that looked at itself with his own monies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Harlem Renaissance, as fantastic as it was, was really controlled and engineered by people who weren't black, right. who, were funding, who were funding something called the New Negro. Mm-hmm. Where, whereas in Chicago, it was black money behind black thought, it was black money behind black creativity. And, and that's why we created you know, President Obama, he comes out of the same neighborhood. I mean, if you came to Chicago, he lives about a five minute walk from Louis Farrakhan. I heard that. Wow. And if you go and, and, and if you go five minutes the other way, you get Jesse Jackson and Operation Push. Mm-hmm. And if you come five minutes my way, you got the birthplace of the Black Age of Comics. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all right here in the cluster. We're all right here in the cluster functioning with this and have been. So it's um you know, it's that kind of consciousness. So I just wanted to say that if you get a chance to come to Chicago, you want to look at these things and, and see the nexus of that. Absolutely. Now, before we get into how the Black Age of Comics developed, of course, I want to introduce my, my audience to the man, uh, to Terrell. So um, tell me how you, uh, how, how you started out as an artist. Um, you know, was it like dry media? Was you painting? Did you go to art school? You know, that kind of thing. Can you talk about your development as an artist? Okay, I'm running down real quick. Um, like I said, my grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor, mm-hmm. and he owned considerable property. You know, he took me in. My mom passed when I was two, so when I was three, oh, wow. okay. his, sons were, his sons were all sitting at the table making art, and I walked over and said, well, how do you do this? And they put me in a chair and gave me a pencil, and it's like an explosion went off in my head. So it's like, boom, I'm an artist. And so I'm watching them make art. I'm, I'm watching Pops do his charts. Mm-hmm. So, so I've been making art ever since. So a lot of, you know, other artists, I didn't arrive at 15, 20, or 30 with some kind of an epiphany. I was doing it the whole time. And mm. so my art, making, my art making and my thinking and my growing all kind of coalesced together. To me, the visual process is really my first language and my indigenous language. Okay, okay. And I'm pretty fluent in it. Uh, then after that, uh, sure, I wanted to go. I, I ended up at the School of the Art Institute because, you know, I had a big head. I thought if you're the number one school, then I'm going to the number one school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went there. Um, I got my master's in art therapy. I got my undergrad in art education. Wow. Uh, I, freelanced, I freelanced my way through school. I didn't have a scholarship, so... You know, I worked for Ebony Magazine, Motown. I did album cover design. I worked for Playboy, okay. doing artwork. Uh, how did you, how did you end up in France? Um, 
when our directors, you know, I was a little naive, right? Okay. When, when they didn't want to be bothered, and they didn't want to be bothered with me, they say, well, you know, your work looks real European. So I thought that meant I needed to go to Europe. Okay. <laughs> you know, what it meant was they just weren't feeling my style. So, so I got a one-way ticket and uh, couldn't speak a word of France, French rather, and wow. went to the Riviera and, and hustled my way to Paris and, you know, worked for magazines and fashion houses there. And um, I even worked with the Rolling Stones where I illustrated the album cover for them that fortunately did not pass censorship. Okay. Okay. It, it, it would have been good for the money, but it would have been hard to face down in the public. Um, but, you know, the thing is, I always had the aspirations to be involved in illustration, fine art, animation. You know, these are things that I just kind of grew up looking at in the world and thought I could do that and I'd go after it. Okay. Now, so you're, you're an artist, you're, you're chasing you know, this uh, muse, maybe we should call it, looking for opportunities. Um, you buy one-way ticket to, <laughs> to France. I was going to ask you, when is the movie coming out? But you buy one-way ticket to France. You know, you, you start to make uh, inroads there. Um, when did you start organizing? Like, when did, this, when did the Black Arts Guild come about? Like, when did you start pulling people to together? Okay. <laughs> I like you, so I'm gonna tell you the quick truth. Okay. My my uncles my uncles were the leaders of the first successful black city in Chicago. All right. And so, so they put some of that organizational thing in me. And so in the '60s, as we were going toward the black consciousness movement, black cultural movement, I morphed over to that and was thinking, okay, how can I use my art? to affirm positive change in this thing called black culture. Mm -hmm. And so um, when I, when I got out of high school, I was 18. That was when I formed DAG, the Black Arts Guild, because at that point, my concern was how could young black talented artists work together to become professional artists, not doing protest art, not doing art off the pig, off the man, we bad. I mean, we did that, but you ain't making no money doing that. Right. So, so my thing, my thing was I always had to make money as a kid. You know, I had, you know, my grandfather was out of the deep Negro culture. So you didn't ask for money. You asked for how do you go make money? Mm. And, and, they, and, and they would guide you to your hustle as a little boy. And that's what you did. You pulled your weight, you know? And so, and so my thing was how to make money because well, one of the things that prompted me uh, there's this vocalist, you all know her, her name's Shaka Khan. Mm -hmm. She was a classmate of mine in high school. And so one day in the lunchroom, she's talking about how she was doing background vocals with some people and getting paid. And I'm like, wait a minute, I want to get paid for drawing. Okay. So that's what flipped that switch in me about how to do this. So I formed the Black Arts Guild and started recruiting members. We were uh, self-sustaining. You know, I, I'm not going to run through all that, but, you know, we pooled our money. If you were a member of the guild, if you needed money for rent, you could petition. We cut you a check. Wow. If you were in school, you needed, and if you were in school and needed to buy art supplies for a critique, we cut you a check. We had our own critiques. We did traveling exhibits. And okay, here comes the other part that a lot of the brothers and sisters back then had a problem with. We were looking at changing the Piccaninny into a positive cultural icon. Okay. We were thinking that. We were thinking if the leprechaun can be cool, leprechaun, he's always lying. He's never got a job. He's always, he's claiming he's looking for a pot of gold. Now, if people can buy that sham, we could do something with the leprechaun, I mean, with the pickaninny. Okay. So, so we used to do a lot of pickaninny work, and our logo was the watermelon because the watermelon is typically connected to us. And guess what? It happens to be red, black, and green. <laughs> Okay. Oh, y'all came okay. at it from the from the different perspective. Okay, all right. Okay, so here we were doing positive picking any images and positive interpretations of the watermelon, red, black, and green. When everybody else is doing artwork on off the pig, right? And you know, and they're looking at traveling exhibits, and we're like, well, how can you be against? red, black, and green, and they would just look at us like, oh, no. Hilarious. You know, and then, and, and then, but but then by day, 
we're downtown Chicago and downtown New York in, in offices that ad agencies and publishing companies, what they were looking for for work. So we had that total spectrum going. So, so uh, you know, and it worked. And so we had to guild together from 1970 until 1978 when I started going back and forth to France because, you know, I mean, I was holding it together. I just couldn't do it at that point. Yeah. But those concepts, th- those concepts, the internal concepts, later got morphed into what now is the growing Black Age of Comics movement, genre, and concept. Okay, okay, okay. So, so, um, so that's so a, that's so a perfect wanna, segue. You want to get into that? How how the uh, Black Age came about? Um, the Black Age about, you know, I'm not going to name the brands, but I was going into major offices in New York at major publishing companies that mm-hmm. are known for comic books. And I'm talking to the VP of one. This is ooh, maybe 1980. Okay. And, you know, he, he, he says to me, do black people read? And, and, you know, we're talking and I realized, wait, he's not trying to dish me. He really believes in this stuff. Yeah. And so then, yeah. and so then there's some other companies that go to, and they're like, well, who are you? And I'm like, I'm your one o'clock appointment. They're like, well, you couldn't have done this work. You're a black guy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm like, okay, we need to expand history like the way the music industry got expanded so that when you show up and you black, nobody's in a state of shock. Yeah. And if you're doing work, if you're doing work that reveals and showcases and expresses your blackness, that nobody's in a state of shock. So the comic book industry is sort of separated in ages, golden age, silver age. So my thesis was if you come from the black African urban or independent experience Mm -hmm. that puts you in the black area. That puts you in the black age. Okay. So in nineteen so in nineteen ninety three, my company, Only Studios, we organized the world's first Black Age of Comics convention and it was a full convention. We had vendors, workshops, seminars, door prizes. Wow. And we and we paralleled it with the launch of Milestone Media. Okay. So Milestone Media launched the same month we did it was like we were a week apart so my operation we're launching the black age as a movement and genre and milestone media launched as the biggest black owned company the industry had ever seen now is this serendipity or did you know the brothers over at milestone oh we knew each other Dwayne mcduffie and i were talking about it for a long time i mean it's funny because we used to have our meetings and talk Dwayne and I, uh, Dennis Cowan, uh, uh, Mike Davis, who were three of the principals along with Derek Dingle at Milestone. And so when we first met, Milestone was a secret. You know, they weren't telling what they were going to do. Um, and then when Dwayne let me know, I'm like, well, look, let's coordinate this. And so when we had our launch, we had Milestone products. You know, they had shipped us posters and everything. So we were introducing it to the Chicago market. So this was total coordination. So I just want to let that out because there's this myth that brothers and sisters don't work together. Yes, we do. We always work together. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. you don't get, you know, you don't get this far on planet earth without working together. Can we do better? Sure. But better don't mean we don't do good. It means we just got to improve on it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Milestone later on, but let me get back into the Black Age of Comics. So you had a full convention, okay. you coordinated the launch, you know, in a, in a sense with, with Milestone. Um, who were some of the artists or, or, or companies that were there? What was attendance like? What was the reception that you got from the crowd? Give me some of that feeling, some of that vibration. Uh, you know, if you ever been to Chicago back then, it was really cold. We did it in February, Black History Month, so it was probably like five degrees outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a house. We did it in the Bronzeville District at the uh, historic Southside Community Arts Center, which is the last existing art center from the old WPA days. Oh, wow. That okay. were, uh, these, these were programs during the Great Depression. Yeah, that put were people to work. And so, yeah. and so and so that's where we had it. Um, the the uh, people that were there, it's like Tim Jackson presented. Oh, wow. Uh, he has okay. a product out. He, yeah, he has a book called, you know, uh, Pioneers of Color or something like that in the comic book industry, Pioneering Cartoonists. 
uh, <clears throat> Craig Rex Perry presented. People know him from being an animator with the Proud family. And at the time, he was working with um, BET had a, a trendy magazine. I forget the name of it. And he also did a product line. He, he was doing a book at that time called Hip Hop Heaven. Okay. Um, there were some other people featured. There's a brother named Brazil James that did Jam Graphics. So it might have been three or four publishers, and I had picked up books that um, early products that Machendo had worked on, uh, Electro X would have been one of them. Um, Roland Laird had a book called uh, MC Squared. Uh, Willie Brown had a book called Inner City Products. And we we had uh, different products from... Uh, big city, meaning the the uh, brother man books. Right. So um, so they weren't there present, but we had all that on display wow. and to sell. So the so the presenters would have been Craig Rex Perry, myself, uh, Tim Jackson. So we would have been the prime presenters. Okay. We okay. had uh, we had a recruiter from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and we had oversight by Herbert Nixon, who at that time was the executive editor for Ebony Magazine. Wow! And so when I say and, and when I say oversight, he was there in the building with us the whole time. Okay. okay. You know, so he was he was he was given a lot of tips and mentoring and hanging out. He's just really a beautiful brother. So you had and some so, some real so luminaries had, there. So now I want to know about the audience. Who was in the audience? Was it just our students? Was it moms and dads and kids? Who, who tell me about the people who uh, you know who the who audience cares? the audience the audience was a little bit of all that. You had wannabes, you had uh, art teachers that made it a field trip and brought busloads of students. Okay, say high school, say high school level. You had people who were looking to go to college. That's why we had the recruiters there. Wow. Uh, we we had a bunch of ideologues uh, from the old black cultural nationalist movement who don't know what to make of a comic book, but they were there. And, uh, and we, uh, okay, and, and, right. you know, and then we had people that, you know, call themselves collectors of black art, but they don't touch anything called a comic book, but they were there. Hmm. You know, we, we, we had, you know, we had them all there. We, we had writers. Uh, we had a, a simulcast going on with Kennedy King college. They had a radio station. Mm-hmm. So there was a, a brother there that did a, a a program called Critics Corner. So, you know, he did a, a cast. So that went out to, you know, pretty good audience. All right. So we had a lot of things. We had a lot of things going on. And we did it for about five years in a row at the Southside Community Arts Center. And then um, Yomi Odom out of Philadelphia got in touch with me. We had been talking all along. Mm-hmm. He got in touch and wanted to know my feelings if they would do the East Coast Black Age of Comics convention. I'm like, go for it. Please do that. Okay. And so that, that's when the movement leaped from just being Chicago to now we're in another market. Wow. And at this point, and, and at this point that cascaded to, um, in Detroit, it's the Motor City Black Age of Comics convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Atlanta, it's OnyxCon. And, and in New York, they do the um, Black Comics Fest. They do a Black Comic Book Festival mm-hmm. out in San Francisco. So we have grown in different markets. So you, you, started, you started African People's Comic Con movement, basically. Yes, exactly. Wow. And, and you can see the impact. And, you know, I used to always go like, to, you know, San Diego Comic-Con back there and do presentations on all this. And, um, and so the industry has kind of looked at our mojo and that's why you see them, um, promoting their characters of color. Okay. And so they're like, they, they've got a corner in the market before we figure the commerce out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we have a range of characters as a movement. You okay, know, stop, 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 stop. You, you made a heavy, heavy point, and it bears repeating. You said okay. they want to corner the market before we figure the commerce thing out. 
Exactly. exactly. Is that what happened with Black the, Panther, the Black Panther movie? Does anybody remember much of the Black Panther before 1993? Now, he's only been around since 1967, mm -hmm. and he only whooped up on Captain America all the time, but he was always considered a B-rate character. Yeah. Just like Luke Cage, Luke Cage was a joke in the industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and a lot of brothers and sisters that worked in the industry, you know, you talk to them at an event and they push you off like, like they didn't want to be outed for being black because they knew another black person. Wow. And so the industry was real uptight about you being black or, the, or what to do with a black product. Yeah. And so uh, 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 even Blade, Blade in the books, wasn't that much of a character. No. Okay. Before the movie, before the movie, which was more on one of our products, mm -hmm. the look, yeah. you know, but they didn't create that look. They didn't create that look. I created that look. And, you, and they, whoa, whoa, they you created it, that look. You know? Explain, please. I put out a character in a book in 1992 called Malcolm 10. And he had the deep urban haircut with the lines in the head mm -hmm. and, and the gun shaped like that and the attitude and the glasses. And at that time, Blade in the comic book had a big curly afro and wore bell bottoms. Right. Okay. Okay. And I was in a long conversation with the uh, vice president of acquisitions at New Line Cinema. And uh, all of a sudden it broke down. He returned myself and he said, well, I'm giving it to you because I don't trust my own people. Then they optioned Blade. And then here comes Blade with the Malcolm 10 look. Okay. And if anybody, if anybody wants to question me on it, get a copy of Malcolm 10. I'm looking at uh, Malcolm 10 cover now. He does, he does yeah. have that blade feel, especially the haircut. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. In other words, in other words, Blade's got the Malcolm 10 feel. Right. See, see so, uh, and, and when I've gone to lawyers, they're like, sure, we can see your case. You got your copyright, but you got to advance us two hundred and fifty thousand for us to take it on. And I just don't have that chump change. Uh, but this is what I mean about the commerce. Uh, what okay. we're dealing with in the Black Age, the lawyers, the accountants, the financial people have yet to show up. Mm. And so the bigs, and the bigs in the industry, they like they like making money on it the way that uh, the music industry made money with R&B with the likes of uh, Elvis Presley until Motown put up a challenge. Okay. You know, and so, and so when Motown figured out the commerce and the music industry, it radically changed the music industry forever. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, and so we're looking at that. Um, Milestone had a good run. They had a production deal. Okay. So they had a production deal. They had a production deal with a major company. And they had a good run. I mean, they ended up doing Static Shock, which had a good run mm -hmm. in animation. I mean, they, they had a real good run. So I see the progress all around. And my thing is, if something's good, make it better. I see the progress and, you know, how to make it better. And so it's not the need for better writing, drawing, graphic design, and that. What's needed is somebody better than us in distribution. Okay. Somebody better than us swinging deals with the investors, somebody managing all the administrative stuff. That is where you win the commerce. You got to control that. See, see a lot of times we fall into the love of being a victim. Like, well, you know, we created it and they stole it. Well, did they steal it or did we discard it? Did they steal it or did we come up short on the commerce? Hmm. And so I read it. And so, you know, I believe in coming from a position of power. You ain't stealing from me. Right. Okay, and so the key the key is I'm going to win the struggle on the commerce. It's taking longer than I thought, but the reason why I bring it up because I know it's out there. You got too many brothers and sisters that's been downsized by corporate America mm -hmm. that's driving Uber. They need to wake up and come to us. Mm. Okay, they need to come to us. We we've done the grunt work. You're talking about a movement that has been sustainable in several major markets in the United States. Mm -hmm. All we need to grow is the commerce part. Okay. And none of us are lawyers. None of us are accountants. None of us are, are, are these kind of people. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. That's not our pedigree, but we've gotten it this far. Mm -hmm. So what's needed is that complimentary service. I don't care 
where they come from, they're welcome, but they need to get with us before we have to make deals with some people that might lock them out. I got you. I got because you. Because it, because because at some point you can't keep saying no. You see, I'm not saying the deals don't show up, mm-hmm. but you're like, man, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be in bed with you. You know? Yeah. It's like it's like I'm seeing I'm seeing fleas jumping around and stuff. I ain't getting over there. <laughs> you know? Okay. You know? And if you can read, you know when the line says those are fleas and you don't want them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So no, I, I think what middle. you're saying, <laughs> I, I think what you're saying is timely in particular, uh, for the, uh, the, the, the gentlemen and, and the ladies that I'm talking to, there've been several that have had deals on the table. There's one conversation yeah. I had in particular with a brother down in Atlanta. Um, you know, he has a, you know, a, a concept, he put out like a little short animation, some concept art on Facebook. Um, and then they came knocking at the door and he offered him, you know, mm. so much for the movie rights. You know, he's a businessman. So he looked at what they were offering, figured, okay, they're trying to lowball me. No. So then Black Panther comes out. Everybody in God goes to the movie theater twice. They come back and they offer him twice right. the money that, that they did. You know what I mean? So this brother, being a savvy person he is, he said, well, I'm trying to do this animation thing. Let me just do my own, you know what I mean? Do my own situation. And so... He's actually got a film coming out, I think, early next year. His own animation uh, people. And then those folks that came to him, they're trying to spin off something on Netflix. That's how heavy yeah. it's getting. So you're, you're, well, what see, you're saying well, is timely. Well, see, it's called competition. Yeah. Once you realize you're competing, the, the thing that competition has to lose and somebody has to win. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and, and you got to look, look at what level you're at. And when you go with the bigs, cause for instance, uh, when I put out Nog to protect the pyramids, again, I'm not going to give them free press, but a major company, you know, I'm in their office trying to see if I could option Nog with them. They offer me, <laughs> and mind you, this is 1981. They offered me $20,000 for all rights. And I'm telling you out of nowhere, the check hit the table. Wow. And I flipped the check over. I flipped the check over and it's got a paragraph on the back of it that says the endorsee above agrees to the following. And the following was they would have owned all the rights to everything I had created up to a five-year window before and five-year windows after the date of that check. I tore that check up in little bitty pieces. It was like molecules when I finished. Wow. Okay. Uh, all right. And, and not only that, but it would have said that I could not have told anyone that I had sold the property to them. So that let me know in 1981 I was on to something. Mm-hmm. Because nobody tries to lock down your product unless it's got value. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. These, these people don't go for stuff that's worth less. They look for value and they come for it. Mm. Now, okay. so we're, we're, uh, what, 20, let me see, next, so seven, so, uh, you started, you said in 74, right? Is that's when the first, uh, my memory's funky. Um, the, the, the first Black Age of Comics convention, we launched the Black Age in 93. 93. Uh, see, my numbers get crazy because I started the Black Arts Guild in That's what I was thinking. Okay, okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've, I've been busy at this for a long time, and uh, I've seen total. I've seen progress all around. The mm-hmm. thing that gets me is a a lot of black independents. Everybody wants to do for self, so you, they don't really pool the resources in a way to be able to be stronger on the competitive end. Number well, you two, know that's um, that's changing though, and I, and I only say that because of the. The, 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 the sample group of people that I talk to, you know, I'm, I'm, I started this particular, I've been podcasting for, you know, a few years. I started the, this vibration, this reincarnation of it two years ago. And I didn't, you know, hear very many people working together. Now one brother has a print press in California. Another brother has a big store online. So now they're doing like on-demand printing. You know, there are people that are, you know, Michendo, you know, it's always helping different people, different people. Gray Williamson, there's names. Your name pops up as, as in terms of mentoring other artists and stuff. So maybe not to the level of, of bag, 
you know, because, you know, I think you laid that foundation, something that should be emulated. But I think people are working together, uh, but they always could do better. Yeah, well, I'm not saying it's not happening like it's a total zero. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at, see, everything I say, you got to remember, I'm long in the game, and Mm -hmm. I've been looking at a lot, at a lot of places inside and out. So, so keep in mind point of view okay. and my filter uh, and that, and that I'm serious about the competitive part. You know, it's like, are we a movement? See, like when I launched the black age, there was nothing in me that did not feel that by now we would be dominating this industry. Okay. So that's my point of view. I got, you, you know, that's my point. Of view. Okay. Uh, and dominance, if you ever compete, dominance is an interesting concept, okay? It ain't just playing the game saying we bad and going home bragging and having pizza, all right? So in a way we've dominated when you look at it being filtered through the bigs and the properties you mentioned that people now go and see two or three times and dress up for and all that. Mm -hmm. So it shows a kind of dominance of the idea of coming from a black and African perspective and really treating it properly. Okay. Okay. So, 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 Turley, so, I, 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 I'm trying to respect yeah. your time. And so I want to, I'm getting to the essence of it. Can you describe for me okay. what dominance would look like in your mind? Describe what dominance on a perfect day, you had the button, you hit it. What would dominance look like? Uh, it, it, it would look like the return of Muhammad Ali, but just this industry okay. where, where the stylizations, the story, the characters, that everything else would look stale and lame and boring compared to what we're offering, that, okay. that it, it, it shifts the paradigm that everything that would have happened before or what you didn't know about, because usually these things have been going on forever. I mean, you know, uh, uh, that, you know, it's like that it doesn't just set a standard. It, it, it rips away at other standards okay. and that of course the commerce is there, you know? Um, uh, so we've, we've produced the creative goods to dominate, okay. but we're not in enough hands. For instance, you can hardly find a rack in the United States of America that is dedicated to the black age of comics where you could look and see 12 to 30 different independently published black comic books and graphic novels. Okay. So it's not that the products aren't out there, but the distributors, the collusion that's in the industry yeah. and a lot of other issues have coalesced that you can't find a rack like that. Okay. Okay. They're rare. And when I say rare, they're really rare. Anybody here in this podcast, go out and find one. And please let me know, (laughs) okay, where you find it. All right? But see, uh, the products are out there. People would be shocked at how many products have been getting published, printed for these decades that people don't know about. Mm -hmm. And, and And within the pool, like anything else, you have products that, you know, are not that good. And then you have products that, okay, or so, so. And then you have those that are like awesome. You're like, whoa, look at this. So, you know, we're producing at that clip. Mm-hmm. See, to me, you know you, you know you have a movement when you have a full range of activity. Okay. You know, just like in sports. You know, yeah, sure, black athletes dominate the NBA, but not all of them are that good. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, a lot of them are like pretty lame. It's like, dude, how'd you get a contract? You know, and, and then you got people to come along like, you know, Dr. J or Michael Jordan or Steph Curry. You see what I'm saying? So, so you have the top of the food chain, but that opens the door for people that might not be dominant, but as a force, it's dominant. Okay. Now, I, and, I, need, and, I, and I see that, where you're coming from, man. You remind me of uh, Malefe Keti Asante. I listened to his lecture. And he was explaining what Afrocentricity meant, because I guess he kind of coined the phrase. And, uh, you know, that yeah. was that was heavy. You know what I mean? So I need you to put it where the goats can get it. So are you saying dominance okay. means basically ownership and, and, and controlling the commerce? In other words, if you want an indie black property, yeah. you got to buy from an indie black outfit. Is that what you're saying, basically? You got it. 
There you go. I'm All saying right. that. I went to public schools, uh, Dirtel, man. You got to break yeah. it down for a brother. You got to keep it simple. You know what I mean? Less than 500 words. You saying ownership is what's missing. I'm saying I'm saying ownership, control, and you make the, comp the competition obsolete. Gotcha. Gotcha. That you just ain't thinking about them no more. Okay, gotcha. like, 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 you know. So like, you like, want Dizzy like you and Miles and Coltrane and Alice and them to have black managers on black record labels and in 2018 on black websites for distribution. That's what you're saying. I'm talking about be like Motown. Okay. All right. Okay. 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 If there's no Motown, you don't have a Stevie Wonder. All uh, right. Uh, okay. Okay. If, if there's no Motown, you don't have a Michael Jackson. If there's no Motown, there's a lot you don't have. Okay. Okay. And, and Motown started was still is black owned in whatever its incarnation is. Okay. Okay. And those, and those that followed the system at Motown, when they left, they kept making money. Okay. They kept making money. Okay. Stevie right now, if he wants to go on tour, it's like a traveling bank. <laughs> yeah. He it's printing just money. money going from market to yeah. market. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody's going. All okay. Right. All right, okay. that Stevie's called. That's called that's called dominance. Right. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to we're about to move into the to the to the lessons learned, uh, historical business part of the program. I've had the pleasure of interviewing you know Daoud uh, Anabwile. You know, what I mean, brother man. Right. Back in the day, I had uh, you know yeah. uh, Roosevelt Pitt on there. I had both of them together. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I had you know <laughs> distinguished pleasure of having uh, Michael Davis. Uh, 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 you know right. what I mean? Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, now yeah, I got Turtel only. I mean, I'm slowly starting to kind of get the, you know, the guardians of the universe together. I'm, I'm going to ask you the same questions yeah. I asked uh, Daoud and Roosevelt. Give me lessons learned. So what was like the peak? What was the apex of the black age of comics um, or, or your, or even if you want to go into your career, cause I'm, I'm trying to limit it to, cause a lot of my people are creators, right? Writers, creative, the whole thing. And so I want to make sure that they stay focused. Describe the apex okay. of the black age of comics. And then after I want you to tell me what were some of the lessons learned? I could have did this better. I wish I had known that. Tell me the apex first. Go ahead. Um, for me, the apex was when. Dwayne and I coordinated the launch of Milestone and also the launch of the Black Age that it happened in the same month. It happened on schedule. Milestone went on to consistently publish books for a number of years uh, that hit the market as scheduled and that we were able to sustain the Black Age uh, conventions until it caught on with another city. Okay. Um, that, that, that arc to me, sustains me to this day. It, it shows that it could be done. Uh, Milestone was in New York. I was in Chicago. There was really no internet at that time. We were working it out the old-fashioned way, mm -hmm. and, and it worked. You know, it definitely worked. So what um, I hear is a synergy my, between, now correct me if I'm wrong, I hear a synergy between the independent, which is what you're doing, the, the, you know, the, the black age and, and, the, and the people on that vibration, and yeah. I would say a captive shop, is that correct? Or a corporate? I mean, how would you describe well, well, Milestone the I, back then? Well, well, the way I talk about it, Milestone had a production deal. Okay. Uh, it's just like if, if, like Prince had a production deal with Warner Brothers. Okay. Okay. Prince was, Prince was not his own independent label. Okay. Okay. And nobody slammed Prince for having a production deal. Okay. Warner Brothers would say, bring up the tapes and they would use their muscle to make sure it was number one on the charts. Gotcha. Okay. So, so Milestone would bring in the product, and the company, the oversight company, DC, that was owned by Time Warner, would make sure it would get shelf space, promotional space, and all that. Okay. So they had a production deal. Okay. Whereas Only Studios is an independently owned LLC, and that I own it and control it. Gotcha. And, and, that, and that what I was doing was launching the movement and genre mm -hmm. and what they were doing was launching a company, gotcha. a company with the product line. Yeah. See, so, so, so it's like, it's like, say 
say Jay Z's doing music, but hip hop and rap don't exist yet. Nobody's launched hip hop or rap yet, so what is he doing? So mm. somebody's got to say what it is, mm-hmm. you know. You, you, you know, it was existing, but it didn't have a name yet. I know mm-hmm. people are like, what? What do you mean? It's always been rap and hip hop. Well, if you go back in time, there was no rap and hip hop as a genre. Yeah. So, so, so you can't you can't use the genre as a force if it has no name. It's got to have a name. Okay, and that's unusual because usually somebody outside the black community names what we produce. You're the first one that I'm aware that actually named it. Exactly, exactly. And, and let me tell you, when I was in the hinterland, uh, I remember some cultural nationalist brothers telling me, well, see, brother, you know, those two words, black and age, they just don't go together. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll get back to you. And, and, and then I had brothers who was like, well, do you have to call it black? Like you're going to turn people off calling it black. Couldn't you call it obsidian or something? You know? So, so, so it was a lot of blowback for a long time. And, and, um, you know, and so, but anyway, lesson that was for me, the apex and, and the lesson learned, uh, there's the infighting in the black age. There's the infighting. And, and so I still struggle with getting brothers and sisters to understand that when we have infighting, we all lose. There's, there's no gain from that. Like, like I said, I grew up in a household with some guys that became thugs and gangbangers. And I'm talking about real gangbangers. I'm talking about like, I don't even want to tell you. Yeah, don't, don't name imagine. nobody. I want to, you know what I mean? You know, yeah, okay. keep going. And so, and, and so what I'm getting at is we as a people never, ever win when we fight each other. Okay, so, so let's, let's go there for a second. You, you're, I would consider you an elder in terms of just the work you put in. I'm not even talking about yeah. the ages and the gray hairs and your goatee. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the work that you put yeah. in. Yeah. So if I if well, I'm a creator and I got a beef with my brother, I mean should I should I holler mm-hmm. him on social media? <laughs> I mean, how do you how how would you I mean it seems a simple thing, but maybe it's lost on some people. Uh, uh wait, wait. I would I I would look in the mirror and say, why do I have a beef with him? What's Ooh. in me? that interprets what he's doing as a problem. Uh, let's see, you done messed around and went to the you roof. Out here, you out here in the big world, why is he getting the focus of your anger and rage right. to the point that you want to slam him, demean him, right. in order to make you look bigger or stronger? Mm-hmm. Okay, like, 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 what is, like, like, what's your malfunction? But okay. Tertel, he's and, wrong, and, though. He was wrong. It's not me, it's him. And, and, and still, what is your malfunction that once you arrive at that, if you think he's wrong, then why don't you just leave him alone? Mm. Like, like, like I used to teach public, I used to teach public school. Right. Mm -hmm. And so a fight would break out. And so I couldn't figure out how to stop the fight. So, you know, when I was first in my career, you just grab somebody. Right. 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 And then they changed the rules where you can't touch them. So I figured it out. I used to say, um, why y'all got to touch each other? And they'd be like, ooh, nasty, ooh. I'm like, okay. That's you know, I'm like, if y'all don't like each other, why do you have to touch each other? Mm-hmm. Like, what is that about? Because you can't fight without touching. Right. You can't fight without contact. Right. So if you really got a beef with this guy, why are you broadcasting his name? Mm-hmm. Why are you publicizing his energy and stuff? Mm-hmm. Why are you now being his pitch man yeah. if you got a so-called beef with him? I don't get it. And so, but, but the final analysis is it brings the house down. And we as a people, I mean, we were doing infighting before slavery. That's why slavery worked. Mm. Okay. That's why it worked. Okay. Uh, if we would ever give up on crime and violence, which is nothing but infighting, then our community would be an oasis for us and any tourists that wanted to come in and spend money with us. Mm. Okay. okay. And so we just need to look at that for real. I don't care if the fighting is going back and forth, your mama, your mama, or, or shooting each other in a drive-by. The bottom line is it brings the house down and the house is where we all live. Yeah. We all live in yeah. the house. And yeah. so, and so I've watched the carnage uh, in my family. I've watched it in communities. Uh, I taught in Chicago and you know, all you ever hear out of Chicago is people shooting each other. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, and so I, 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 I still teach. You know, I teach at a college in Chicago. Okay, and I used to be a community. I used to be a community art therapist. My masters have a clinical degree in art therapy. Mm. So the, the the clinical the clinical underpinnings that the uh, late Elijah Muhammad used to call self hate mm-hmm. is serious. Yeah. It's serious, and so the school the school of put down and ridicule that we put on each other as recreation. Mm-hmm. So the seed for the self-hate that leads to, I got a beef. You got a beef, why? Because he did something better than you. Uh, you got a beef, why? I, I mean, and, and just personally in my own business, yeah. they're brothers out here. I'm not going to name names. I have given them my money for goods and services, and I got nothing in return. Right. So I just don't deal with them anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I lost, I lost a lawyer because we were going after so many people for petty cash. He said, man, I'm not a bill collector. Wow. And, and, I, thought, and, and I thought, you're right, let me just leave them alone. So I don't yeah. care how awesome they are. Mm-hmm. If, if that's what they do, I just leave them alone. Yeah. You know, I just leave them alone, then I don't have a problem anymore. And, I, and I'd rather deal with somebody mediocre that's responsible and business-like than somebody that's awesome this temperamental and what happened to my money and why didn't I get to work? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Or, or, or why did I get your books? Like, like my company, we were distributing. And so there were, there were independent publishers. We sent a check to and never get the books. Wow. Okay. All right. There, there were people I'm like, okay, want the books. Here's the money in advance. I see them at a convention, never get the books. Hmm. And so I just leave, I just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. You know, I don't, I'm I don't, gonna... I, I don't want to, I I don't want to add, because see, in our circles, meaning black circles, yeah. the second something negative is said, it explodes. Mm-hmm. You say something good, and hardly anybody will mention it. They don't yeah. repeat it. Yeah, that's just human nature in general. But, but let me let me ask you a more yeah. philosophical question, and it's particularly mm-hmm. because of your, your background in art therapy. So um, yeah. there's a sister, um, a doctor, whose name escapes me. It'll come to me. But she basically wrote a book about a post-traumatic slavery uh, syndrome or something to that effect. Uh, yeah. The root yeah. is is that you know obviously and you know that slavery has had profound psychological effects on African people here in America and basically is tantamount to trauma. It's been passed down and yada yada. Mm-hmm. So I know that mm-hmm. in the past, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, art has been used as a therapeutic method to help people deal with trauma. I wonder if, if there could ever be like an art therapy to help African people, you know, manage, overcome this trauma that we've suffered in this vibration. That's just, you know, well, it exists. It exists. Um, you know, personally I was doing it. Uh, at one point I had an art center in the Robert Taylor Holmes housing project of Chicago. Okay. which at that time was the largest project in the United States. Wow. And within a, and within a two year, uh, uh, after two years, within a five building radius of where we were operating, shootings went down, crime went down. Wow. High school attendance went up, dropout, dropout rates went down. Wow. Uh, the proof was in the pudding. And back then, I ain't a big guy now. Back then, I weighed all of 140 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I used to, I used to call it going to the country club wow. and it was all, it was, uh, it was our therapy on an industrial level. We are a, 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 a perennial traumatic people. Mm-hmm. So it's not just post slavery, but it's also the trauma we put on each other. Sure. And so, and so this, this difficulty in reaching out for therapy, therapy is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Therapy is a good thing. Um, uh, as a people, we need to get more involved on the treatment end, rather it's going to school to become the therapist and the clinicians, or on the receiving end, meaning going to get the services and realizing that a lot of the extreme acting out to the point of violence and something that I call the black-on-black boycott, where we avoid each other in legal business, mm. is, 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 is a byproduct of these traumas yeah. and these put-downs. So, mm-hmm. so we don't see each other as a source of prestige. Mm-hmm. We don't see each other as a source of prominence and power uh, in the way that we should. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the Jewish community, if you look at the Jewish community after World War II, 
a high percentage of them became psychologists because they knew what they needed. They needed therapy. Mm. A high percentage of them became social workers and clinicians, you know, and they opened up all kinds of facilities to deal with self-healing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to do that. And, uh, and people have to understand that um, therapy is different than religion. Okay. okay? Uh, therapy for your, your emotional self, therapy for psychological anomalies. It's just like if you break your leg, we cannot pray and heal your leg. Mm-hmm. You've got to go somewhere and get it set. You've you got to get it professionally analyzed and set. There's nothing wrong with the praying, but you're going to need a doctor. And if yeah. it's a compound fracture, you're going to need even more treatment. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm all down with everybody's belief system, but the therapy for us as a people worldwide has a long way to go to catch up with the manifestation of the pathology and the need for therapy and the cause for therapy. Let me, let me, so, let me interject uh, this, this, uh, Story. I actually told this to my daughter, like, I don't know, a couple of days ago. Um, when I was in the Matrix, and that means religion, uh, I used to go yeah. to this church in Philadelphia. I lived in Philadelphia a number of years. And this was, uh, you know, a lot of professionals in the church, you know, uh, you know, the two pastors, both of them had PhDs. We had a couple in the church, both of them were doctors. This is during the time when the Bill Cosby show was, you know, at its peak or whatever. A lot of professionals. Right. Uh, twice a month yeah. in the church, they would, after they have the morning singing or they call it praise and worship, they would just have this time where people would just release. And, and, and to tell brother, they were screaming. I'm talking about grown men and women. They were just fucking screaming. Just, they would just wail. They would cry. They would, they would just stand there trembling. It freaked me the hell out. And you know, I was, mm-hmm. how old was I back then? 30 some years old or whatever. And I didn't understand it because I was working at a black health magazine, <laughs> black old black okay. operator. But these brothers and sisters, they were all professional men. They was going through it at work. Those white folks was putting them through some changes. And when you talk about therapy is not religion, God damn it. We don't know that, man. Jesus ain't going to help your fucking trauma. Look, it's, it's the thing. The thing is, we, we, we need to. See, when you need therapy, we need to dignify that, just like we need to dignify special ed. Mm. You know, if your, kid, if your kid is dyslexic, your kid needs therapy. Yeah. Your kid needs to be on the yellow bus to go to the therapeutic day school yep. to get the right kind of treatment and services yeah. so then later on your kid could go to the regular school. Mm-hmm. It, and, 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 and so it's like that. It's no different then if your kid has a skull fracture, he's going to be in the ambulance going to the hospital. Yeah. You know, you know, that's why these services exist. And um, when we didn't have certain resources, for instance, the reason why brothers and sisters created voodoo coming out of the slave experience was to really achieve a therapeutic impact. It wasn't just theology and things like that, but the, the healing potential of herbs as medicines and the, the kind of rituals to get people to just try to some kind of way be human during the slave experience mm-hmm. was the foundation of what we call voodoo and also the foundation of the sanctified church and the foundation of uh, the Pentecostal church. Yeah. Well, here we are now in the 20th, 21st century. We know much more and, and we got to really look at, the clinical side of our, of, of our needs, just like the commerce side, I mean, there are things to do uh, and, and things that need to be done. And, um, you know, it's meaningful. I, I've, like I said, I've done it. I've seen the benefits. Uh, I, 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 I struggle with uh, young people I missed, you mm-hmm. know, that I worked with that, that we just couldn't reach them. It wasn't enough resource you know, whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I look at that. I look at that on balance and, and uh, the need is there. I mean, one of my underpinnings about the Black Age of Comics movement and commerce is that if you want to change somebody's life for better, give them a job. Mm. If they have a legal job, if they have a legal job, things get better. Yeah. Uh, if, if a brother or sister is doing something that's legal, 
and you want to see them improve, spend some money with them. The more you spend money with them, the better they'll get. Yeah. And you got to be patient. They're not going to be perfect right away. They're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we abandon it, which is what I call the black on black boycott, then there's no jobs. Yeah. So a young brother and sister that's kind of on the fence needs a job where they can say, okay, this is what it means to earn legal cash and be righteous and go forward. Mm-hmm. And that brother or sister is the role model in their peer group because their peers are like, whoa, you got a job. I want one too. Yeah. Okay. And, and if the younger brothers and sisters see older brothers and sisters doing business together, then they think that's what they're going to do when they grow up. I have no problem with people that work mainstream. I have worked mainstream. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the idea of working mainstream is now you should know how to manifest your dream as a business. Because by working mainstream, you have had the experience of being in the model. There is no learning like earning in the model. And so now that you've learned that you can come and consult, contribute and engage. Mm Mm-hmm. That's it. You know, that's it. And, 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 and that'll clean up a lot. That'll clean up a lot, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so I, I look at that, you know, I mean, I, I struggle with the fact, I mean, my company, you know, we can't pay a lot cause we don't have big revenue, but we pay. Okay. Yeah. We pay you whatever, whatever we negotiate, you get a signed agreement, you get paid. Um, my point is I look at young brothers and sisters who, you know, phenomenally talented and very dedicated. Mm-hmm. Where can they work? Where can they work to learn their trade? Yeah. Okay. And so um, right now, only studios can give you bona fide entry level experience and a lot of guidance on where to go next. And we've done that for some people who who now are working mainstream with the majors. And, you know, we're still tight. Um, and, and so the thing is, it's like that. Where do you go? Like in other cultures, they have a feeder system mm-hmm. where you can start off and kind of get it together. And so, you know, we have, we have as a movement individuals that do mentoring and we have individuals to teach. Like I teach at the college level, uh, John Jennings teaches at the college level, William Foster teaches at the college level. See, one of the things that I tell people, the black age of comics (laughs) is one of those black movements that's egghead driven. Mm. You know, most of the brothers that, that are at the top of the food chain in the black age, meaning the people that hold it together, got either a bachelor's, master's, or PhD from major institutions, whether it's a historically black college or university mm-hmm. or any other school. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so we have, we've done that work, you know, see, we've done that work. So we're not operating outside of that paradigm. We function within that and still arrived at something autonomous, Yeah, you know, Beautiful. See, 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 we kept our autonomy while going through all that, that, what is that called? A mainstream education. Mm-hmm. And so going forward, going forward, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm still betting on us. That's where I put my money. Beautiful. You know, that's where I put my energy. Beautiful. Uh, I tell people you can always, you know, just do an internet search on black age of comics and mm-hmm. see what we're doing. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's out there. Well, I, I tell you, this interview comes in my mind at a, a very uh, interesting time. Uh, a few days ago, I guess it was, or maybe last week, uh, you know, the internet was flooded with news that Stan Lee uh, passed away. It wasn't Stanley Stanley Leibowitz, I think. Was that what his real name? I think uh, something like last that. Last name Lieber. Lieber. That's right. Stanley Stanley Lieber. Lieber. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he he passed, mm-hmm. and you know everybody was. But I started thinking, I was like, you know, in many ways, our Stan Lees are still around. You know, yourself, um, oh. you know, the brothers oh. over, you know, at, at, at Milestone, the brothers at Brother Man, the brothers at Aenea. Um, I know that there are folks came before, but in terms of from my perspective, you know what I mean? Our, our Stan Lees are still around. And so I want to thank you for the work that you put in, uh, you know, the encouragement and, and, and nurture that you've given other artists. I uh, was able to get the introduction uh, from uh, Ashley Woods, who I had on my show, uh, I think it was last year, a wonderful woman, a Fantastic. tremendous artist. And, uh, and so uh, we tried to catch up to what you've already built, you know what I mean, in, in many ways, uh, Tertel. So, man, I want to thank you for coming on the program. 
Well, thanks for joining the train, man. We need as many cars, you know, and, uh, you know, it's nothing like, you know, having a chance to talk to an audience. And as I always say, you know, believe it or not, I, I mean, I get tired of saying it now, but I say it. I used to say, Indie Today, Black Age Forever. Yo, family, what's going on with you? I hope y'all dug that interview. This is Jonathan Soul speak with you now. I want you to support my brothers and sisters by following them on social media and going to their website and picking up their product so we can stop focusing so much on issues and start focusing on building industry. For more episodes, go to JonathanSoul.com, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-O-U-L.com. And of course, I'm on social media. I'm on, uh, it's Jonathan Soul at Twitter, Instagram, uh, Tumblr, uh, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on uh, SoundCloud, and um, I'm over at uh, Black Spot as well, that terrific Facebook competitor. Listen, family, I love you guys, and I want all your dreams to come true. And my dreams can't come true without you, and yours can't come true without me. So let's support each other, and let's build this thing together. I love you guys. Peace and love to you and your family. Till next time. Yeah.